while I was away, uh, several things were happening in the global scene. Uh, President Obama gave his uh, annual State of the Union address and uh, the Singapore Daily newspaper, and I have had time to read actually during these four days I was there, had a very interesting uh, an- analysis under the heading, What Obama Left Unspoken Speaks Volumes. And this is what it said. Oops, let me go back here. Uh, said, of all the themes and subjects absent from Mr. Obama's speech, however, the most depressing omission was also the most unquantifiable, hope. The word itself appeared just once. Mr. Obama as candidate was all about offering hope. Mr. Obama as president, somewhat understandably, has been more about staving off despair. Double-digit unemployment will do that to the president. It will also do that to people like you and me. Hope very quickly gives way to despair when we look at the world. During these two weeks while I was away, the World Economic Forum met in picture postcard Davos, Switzerland. And they haven't done much at the end of that time to uh, resist the move from hope to despair. During this time, Ahmadinejad in Iran has been rattling his sabers all over again in response to constraints uh, and uh, from the European Union because of his pursuance of nuclear uh, power, or at least enrichment of the fuel. He has threatened to close the Straits of Hormuz and just completely throttle the main sea route as far as oil supplies was concerned. The U.S.'s response to that as well, we will keep it open by force. And then in the last week or so, three days since I've come back now, we're being warned that within the next three months there's a likelihood that Egypt or Israel may launch a preemptive strike against Iran. And goodness knows what will happen if that happens. The world is spinning out of control. And yesterday morning the center spread in the star, if you saw it, was a story of 12 children in Syria and what's happening to them. Economically and politically the world is spinning out of control. And because the world is a global village, even though these things are far away from us, let's not kid ourselves. We are affected intimately, quickly, and more and more. And the best that the world leaders seem to be able to even attempt to do is to stave off despair. Where are we going to go for a solid hope? We need a word from somebody who's outside the historical process. Someone who's outside the sociological and the economic and the political processes in the world. And I'm so glad that what Obama left unspoken, Isaiah didn't. He spoke a solid word of hope to us. Because it's been eight weeks since we last listened to a faith-building word from him, let me just quickly set the scene once again. We are in that middle section of Isaiah from 40 to 55 that is most relevant and would have been most relevant to the people who were exiled in Judah under Babylonian captivity. And in that setting, there were two dominant questions that plagued them. First of all, is my God powerful enough to actually break the Babylonian stranglehold and take me out of here? That becomes a more and more difficult question if you're in exile for 80 years and not two months. The second question would be, and because it was our sin that got us into this mess, is a holy God able to deal with our sin sufficiently so we won't do it all over again? Will there be a permanent solution? Chapters 40 to 48 basically answer the first question. God is indeed powerful and able to deliver you from the Babylonians and watch how he does it. And chapters 49 to 53, which are probably the centerpiece of Isaiah, answer the second question of how God deals thoroughly and finally with the issue of human sin. So we're heading into some of the most 
awesome passages in Isaiah. And chapter 44, to, end of 44 to 45 that we've come to today is one of the most sweeping declarations of God's absolute control over everything. And we've seen it before, but there's nothing like this section. And it was given for Judah's comfort and is given for you and my com- your comfort and my comfort as we live in this world that seems to be spinning out of control from all directions. I have read this text every morning to myself for several days. It took a little bit longer than he has risen, but, you know. <laughs> and as I read, I was gripped first of all that before I say a thing about this text, you just need to hear it. And you need to hear it undiluted and unspoiled by any human commentary upon it. So it's not even going to go on the inner, on the web. I mean, up behind me, I'm sorry. Uh, I just want you to hear it. So, imagine yourself in the kind of situation. We don't need to. We're in that situation. Is God powerful enough in a world like this? Is He going to be able to deal with human sin? Same questions. They haven't changed in 3,000 years. So will you listen to the word of the Lord? And I'm going to pray both before and after. I had, I've had this growing feeling for these last three weeks. I don't often get a chance to meditate on passages of scripture for four or five or six weeks. But going away does that when I have to come back and preach. I have this conviction that any work that's going to be done is going to be done by the reading of his word and by prayer. Everything else I say, my only hope is I won't get in the way this morning. Father, you said that you have exalted above all things your word and your name. My words are dead, your words are living. My words can confuse, your words illuminate. Your word is sharp, mine are dull. Your word can pierce, mine bounces off people. So will you, will you, this morning, dig out our ears to hear your word. May it become a penetrating, illuminating and comforting word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to the word of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 44, 24 to chapter 45, 13. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to lose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. 
I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with whom are you, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. Ask of me things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for a price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. And Father, again I pray this morning in the words of Augustine of old, I pray that you will force your way into our hearts. You will expand our hearts and our souls. Make them long and large enough, Father, to be able to hold you. It is a mystery that we would otherwise have no way of knowing if you had not revealed it to us. That in the incarnation it became possible for man to be indwelt by God. You tell us in your word that Christ in us is the hope of glory. That this awesome colossal God who delights in his uniqueness and his absolute sovereignty has taken up residence within the human heart and spirit. So will you enact that mystery above all this morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first large section of this passage runs from 44.24 to 45.7 because both those verses say the same thing. They are identical Hebrew, translated slightly differently in English. 44.24 says, I made all these things. 45.7 says, I do all these things. Taken together, they are... Oh, by the way, back up a bit. As I read in between these two sections over and over again, the thing that struck me was the number of verbs. I counted 35 verbs in the short passage. Just get a flavor of this. I've highlighted them for you. He formed and he stretched out and he spread out the heaven. He frustrates and makes fools of diviners. Babylonian oracles were full of plethora of uh, assurances to the Assyrian and the Babylonian kings, giving them only good news. <laughs> None of the bad news that was coming because God, Israel's God was going to destroy both Assyria and Babylon. In the meantime, he confirms and he fulfills the words of his own messengers, which proclaimed his word of what God was going to do. He raises up the ruins of destruct Jerusalem. He dries up the river. Uh, an allusion to Exodus all over again. And then referring to Cyrus whom he is going to raise up. I have grasped his right hand. I will subdue kingdoms. I will lose the belt of kings. I will open doors. I will level the, the ground. I will break through the gates of bronze and cut through the obstacles. I will give him treasures. I name him. I call him. I equip him. I form light. I create darkness. I command it. I stirred. I mean, there is an incredible array of verbs in here that cover the full gamut of human history. And God is the subject of every single one of those words. And Isaiah is just piling the verbs one upon the other. I do all these things. And listen to what I do. You put them together. You can make notes if you want at this point. God claims direct responsibility for all that happens in world history. 
said, I do it. There is no, there are all kinds of secondary agents involved, but they are off the pages of this text. It is God who is the subject. I do everything. That's what he says. Now this is simultaneously a rejection of two very common philosophies. One is called deism. Deism is the, is the picture of God as a clockwork God. You know, yes, God created, he wound up the world like a clock, and then he took his hands off and let it run its own course. Uh, you want a world like that? There's no comfort to me at all. No, no. This is a rejection of them. God is not a clockwork God. He is actively involved. Every single one of these verbs drives home the point that he is intimately involved with the world that he has made. In its processes, historical, philosophical, sociological. It is also a rejection of pantheism on the other hand, which says God is not distinct from the world. God is the world. And there's a slight variation of pantheism called panentheism, which means God is actually identical with the processes of the world. So either statically or dynamically, God is identical with the world. No, the Bible says, Isaiah says, that's not true either. He is absolutely transcendent. He stands outright of it as creator. So this assertion where God claims absolute responsibility for everything that happens is, is a contradiction of deism and a contradiction of pantheism and panentheism at the same time. God is both transcendent and he is involved with absolutely everything. Now, you have to bring these things down into the nitty-gritty of where we are so we understand what it means in practice. So, let me talk about one of the world leaders on the stage. Think of Ahmadinejad. This is a crazy man who comes every year to the United Nations, takes advantage of the very country's uh, values that protect him, and spouts such nonsense that people regularly leave while he is speaking. He speaks about his intention to wipe Israel off the pages of this map. And you have to ask yourself, is God really in control of this guy? Well, listen, Cyrus, that God was talking about in this passage, whose hand he said, I have grasped, almost as if to say, I am leading this person out and placing him on the center stage of world history, so he will accomplish my purposes for Israel's sake. You know who Cyrus was? He was going to be king of Persia. You know what modern day Persia is? Iran. <laughs> Where Ahmadinejad reigned supreme and Khamenei. And listen, what God said about the first Persian king, or that Persian king 2800 years ago, is true of this Persian king too. He's got his hand upon this one too. He's leading them out. And they are accomplishing his purposes. Inscrutable though it may be for us. And if the first, and if King Cyrus had any success, it was because of God, who went before him. If this guy has any success, so to speak, it's because God is going before him to, to level and cut through all those verbs. And you say, but this guy doesn't understand who God is. Neither did Cyrus. In fact, God specifically says, even though you don't understand me or know me, I am going to do this through you for my people. He's going to do it again to this king as well. Listen, Isaiah's vision of God is mind-boggling. It, it, it stretches out so wide, it leaves us breathless if we think about it. Our vision of God is so narrow. That's why the next article in the newspaper gets us all upset all over again. And that's okay. That's why you come back to church on Sunday and get another dose of Isaiah, you know. All the world leaders today, 
The helpless ones that met in Davos. All of Europe that's just in a tizzy right now. Or what to do with Portugal. And what to do with Spain. What to do with Italy. And south of the border. Every one of his hands he's got. And he's accomplishing his purposes. For the sake of his people. That's the beautiful thing about this passage. For Israel's sake. For Jacob's sake. For the church's sake. For your sake and my sake. So I want you to pause right now for a minute. And I want you to think about whatever in the world situation right now that tends to cause you uncertainty, anxiety, whatever. It may be different for different people. As I said, for me yesterday morning, when I read the stories of those 12 children in in Syria, I got anxious. And different things excite us. So I want you to think about that. And then will you please bring this God into that picture? The God of these 35 verbs? So take a moment. Take a moment to deliberately think again about whatever in the world situation is bothering you right now or causes you concern. And will you bring this God into that situation? Reflect upon it. Father, I pray that every time we read or listen to these alarming reports, to the voice of the pundits and the self-styled experts, and our hearts tend to go aflutter again, I pray that we'll never be able to do that without at the same time thinking of Isaiah chapter 45. And may you loom large, may one or more of these verbs come back to our mind by the Holy Spirit and will you work peace and faith that transcends human understanding. May the God of peace be with us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now the last verse of this first section, 45 verse 7, talks about a couple of specific things that God does that I want to park on for a few moments because they are actually quite amazing when we work our way through them. 45.7 says, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. He chooses to end this long section with this statement. And we're so used to skipping so fast over the Bible when we do read it, if, if we do read it, that we're not even shocked enough by some of the things we read. This verse should shock us. I form light. Yeah, we like a God who brings light, but I create darkness. Maybe he's just talking about day and night. Maybe not. Well, the next one takes care of that. I make well-being, which is the Hebrew word shalom, and I create calamity. 640 times that Hebrew word is used, and it ranges in meaning in its usage all the way from a food that has a nasty taste, all the way to moral evil. But 275 times it is translated just calamity or trouble. Which makes perfect sense in this context, which is all about military conquest, first by Babylon and then through Cyrus. And it is set in stark contrast to well-being. Well-being is shalom, where everything is connected. (laughs) Calamity is everything is messed up, nothing is connected. And God says, guess what? I'm responsible for both. Now, we never thought of God like that, did we? Somebody else does the messing up, God only does the peacemaking. 
So we're going to add one more thing to this list. This God who claims direct responsibility for all that happens in world history, we better add this. He is responsible for darkness and disaster too. Or calamity. Now what is that doing in this text? Why does he add that? (coughs) You see, this prophecy from Isaiah that God is going to raise up Cyrus to take care of Israel's situation and was not an unmixed delight. You, you and I would think, well, wasn't that great news, you know? That God's going to raise up another king who's going to blast Babylon out of this world and set us free. No, 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 no. They didn't think that way. Why, why was it a troubling news as well? And for that we need to understand exactly how Judah would have received some of what God was saying. See, twice in this section, God refers to Cyrus as my shepherd and my anointed. Now, for any Israelite who knew his or her Bible well, those were titles that were applied to the royal line of David. Specifically to Messiah. So you can imagine, you can imagine a member of Judah, after Isaiah has preached this and gone away, imagine a few of them talking Did you hear what he said? Did I hear right God? You're going to liberate me from my exile by a Gentile king? That temple that that Solomon built and Nebuchadnezzar destroyed, he's going to finance it? And by the way, we're still going to be under Gentile rule in that case. Yeah, we'll be back in our own land, but Persian king will still be our boss. What kind of freedom is that? And didn't you just say, Isaiah, in your previous messages to us, that idol worshippers didn't even have the sense to ask the question that in one hand I have a piece of wood over which I cooked my meal, and with the second part of that wood I've made an idol to myself, and now you're using an idol worshipper to accomplish your purposes? Somebody who doesn't even know you? Why are you doing that? That wasn't the kind of deliverance we expected. This doesn't make any sense to us. Why couldn't you do it the way you did it back in Egypt? Because there you raised up one of our own people, Moses. And he took on Pharaoh. And he blasted Pharaoh with those ten miracles. And you parted the waters. And he let us out. Why can't you do it that way, God? And God says, remember he said a few moments ago, I'm doing a new thing. Oh, this wasn't what they were expecting. (laughs) Remember he said, forget the former things. I'm doing something new. Who knows what they thought? (laughs) They weren't bargaining for this. They were up against a God whose ways they couldn't understand. So you can well imagine them wanting to engage God in a debate. Just like Job. I'm reading in Job these days. And that was one of Job's big requests. I want an audience with you God. Let's go to court. Because I've got arguments on my side. That was the spirit. Yeah, you lose. That's right. Yeah, you lose. That's right, brother. And it is in that context that we see these next verses. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. Ask of me things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? 
I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. And I commanded all the hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness. Still talking about Cyrus. And I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for a price or reward, says the Lord. I'm going to do it this way and don't argue with me is what God is saying. So what do we do when we're up against a God whose ways we can't understand? We're just, we're just gently warned. Don't strive with me. And the Hebrew word that is translated as striving here not only referred to physical striving, it specifically referred to striving with words like you might in a court of law. So it exactly fits this situation. Such a response, God says, is like a clay saying to the potter, Hey, what are you doing? You missed out the handles. Or he said even more ridiculous, is like a baby in a womb saying to the father, what kind of a baby are you getting? Now, of course, in those images we also see tenderness in there. You know, the potter has his hands on the, on the clay. And of course, a father and a mother are tender towards the child, especially a child in the womb. So yes, there is this tenderness, tremendous tenderness in the relationship. He says, but you don't argue with me when it comes to these things. I do these things the way I want them to. I'm still doing it for your sake. You may not understand them, but I'm doing it this way. You see, we can't put a God like this in a box. And I can't soften the mystery for you here. I can't soften the impact. He says, I, I create calamity. One young man said to me, he said, why, why, don't you, why do you have to say it that way? Why couldn't you just say he allows it? That's because Isaiah didn't say he allows it. God says, I create it. And the word translated create is the Hebrew word bara, which I am told, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I'm told by the Hebrew scholars that only God is ever the subject of bara in the Old Testament. It is his unique domain. And so there is no escape away from this text. I create well-being, shalom, and I am the one who stirs the pot. I create disaster. And Ray Ortland Jr. in his book on Isaiah says this so beautifully. He says, God does not allow darkness and calamity and then blame someone else. He creates the problems of human history. How could it be otherwise with the sovereign of the universe? The strategies of God include within their scope everything that happens as God pursues his redemptive purposes in the world. Evil is not out of God's control. He uses it without being dirtied by it. Nothing, however, evil deprives God of one particle of his intended outcomes. How could it be otherwise? What's the most vicious evil perpetrated in history thus far? The murder of God's own son by our guilty hands. But Isaiah says it was the will of the Lord to crush it. And we'll come to it in Isaiah 53. The worst evil we have ever committed, God turned into a fountain of salvation. And so, in addition to don't strive with him, he gently says to us, Submit to a God who has turned the worst evil humans have ever committed into a fountain of salvation. If God's earlier declaration that he is responsible for everything that happens rescues us from the twin errors of deism and pantheism, this statement that I create darkness and I create disaster rescues us from the philosophy of dualism. Dualism says God and evil are two separate but equal powers. And a lot of ancient mythology came out of that kind of battling that was going on. The Bible knows no such dualism. God stands above that as well. He is the only. 
And he harnesses the evil even as he creates darkness and disaster at times. And that's why Job actually said to his wife when she said, curse God and die. Before things got really bad and time and pain will do that for all of us. At least in the initial stages, Job said, shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil? Now this doesn't mean that you can't question God. The warning against striving with Him doesn't mean we cannot question Him. The very first prayer that is recorded for us in the Bible is a prayer of Abraham who was up against a God he couldn't understand. Because God said, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham said, what? There's some good people in there too. Far be it from you to destroy the wicked with the righteous. I can't understand that God. But he didn't leave him alone. He said, God, he went into a bargaining session with God. You can't be this way. But the beautiful thing is how he did it. First he says, Lord, please forgive me. I'm a man of dust and ashes. So he's well aware of the fact that he's a creature before the creator. And then the second time he says, Lord, please don't be angry with me. Can I just speak one more time? Now he's aware he's a sinful being. And at any moment the wrath of God could swallow him up. But at the same time he didn't leave him alone. He questioned in a spirit of humility and submission that fully understood that he was both a creature and a sinful person whom the wrath of God could swallow up any moment. And yet he had this relationship with his God. And so he counted upon them. He knew he was a lump of clay. He knew he was a created being. But he also knew that his God was in relationship with him. So he questioned him with that. And that's why the Psalms are full of why, why, why. The psalmist asks all kinds of questions. about Why? How long? How come you're not listening to us? Why are you taking so long? Lots of claiming of God. But you notice how they all end up. That God is God and I am a human being. And so we add this. By all means question him but in a spirit of humility and dependence. And the interesting thing is, Abraham didn't get the answer to the question. But he dialogued with God enough in this humble spirit that he broke through to a conviction that God was God and the world was still on solid ground, even though I can't understand it. That's the kind of questioning. We may not get answers, we probably won't get answers. But this kind of encounter with God gets us to the point where answers or no answers, we are convinced that God is God and this world is still okay. Calvin Miller put it so beautifully, he says, Our need for specific answers to specific questions is swallowed up in the greater issue of the Lordship of Jesus over all questions, the ones that have answers and the ones that don't have answers. Can I repeat that for us? It is a memorable thing. That's why I memorized it. Because I don't ever want to forget it. Our need for specific answers to specific questions is eventually swallowed up in the greater issue of the Lordship of Jesus over all questions, those that have answers and those that don't have answers. That's what worship does to us. And please don't forget the, the sweeping declarations that I am responsible for everything, that I create light and darkness I create well-being and disaster. They are not there to stimulate philosophical speculations and arguments. Although there are all kinds of philosophical dimensions to this. In this context, they are there to give comfort. They were for Judah's comfort. And they are for our comfort. That this is how big I am. 
And your inability to understand me doesn't change one bit the fact that I'm working it out for your purposes. Ortland puts it this way, he said, let's stop trying to rescue God from a problem he created for himself by claiming full mastery over all things. Let us not relieve God of his responsibilities as king of the universe. The very thing we perceive as a problem, God perceives as his glory. Namely, God owns the dark moments of life. When Isaiah wrote this so long ago, I love this sentence. When Isaiah wrote this so long ago, he did not overlook a difficulty that we brainy modern people happen to notice. Isaiah 45.7 is not an embarrassment to him. It's what we love about God. Not even evil can frustrate him. And his surprising strategies are our assurance. That's why we can dare to believe that we serve a God who can use Ahmadinejad to accomplish his purposes for his people. He's threatening Israel. He doesn't know who he's dealing with. The church. So, Time to stop once again. Earlier I asked you to bring into any world situation that's troubling you this awesome God who's in charge of everything in this world. Now I want you to think about personal darkness. I'd like you to think about some situation in your own life. Or if you are miraculously spared in terms of that right now, or I shouldn't say miraculously, providentially, it's up to God. The closest you can think of in your personal life that says, hey, this is darkness in my life right now. This is the opposite of shalom. It is not peace. It is agitation right now. Agitation, calamity, disaster. Think of the closest thing to you right now. It could be a person. It could be a relationship. It could be your health. You're talking yesterday afternoon to a young man. I have not been able to get that conversation out of my mind. So will you now bring the same God back into that situation? Will you allow this God to speak those words to you? I create well-being and I create disaster. Do you know why that is good news? Because the God who creates disaster is the one who is able to speak shalom into it. Because he's in control of the darkness, he is totally able to speak peace. So will you invite this awesome God of the 35 verbs, (laughs) this God who says, I create light and darkness, well-being and calamity, will you ask him to come into that and speak peace now? We honor you this morning, O God, by letting you be God. And worshipping you as the one who reveals himself to us. To show us who he is. So, with all the perplexities that attend that confession, we acknowledge that you are God of the darkness. That you own the darkness. 
that you stirred up the pot. You create calamity. Because in it lies our only hope of shalom and peace. May you be honored and worshipped this morning by that confession in Jesus' name. Amen. One last comment with that we finish because in all of this I have not said anything about one single verse. Verse 8, because it immediately follows this incredible declaration that I create light and I create darkness and I create uh, well-being and disaster. In verse 8 he says, Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Now, he's not speaking anymore to Judah. It is God speaking to his creation. And we are allowed to listen to it. And there are two significant implications of this in the light of what we've been talking about. First of all, it says that though I create light and darkness, though I create well-being and disaster, this is the end result. The end result is righteousness and fruit. Eventually, light will trump darkness. And shalom will trump disaster. Of course, it, Isaiah 9 already told us how this was going to happen. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. How does John begin? The light came into this world and darkness has never mastered it. Then, finally, this prophecy came true. This is what he's moving towards. Isaiah is moving towards Jesus all the time. How much of it he understood, I don't know. But praise God, we understand. And in 49 to 53, we're going to see some of the most amazing portrayals of Jesus 800 years before his time. So that's the first good news. The second picture completes our picture of responding to a God we cannot understand. This is a picture of a God who delights in being God. He just absolutely delights in the statements that he has just made. God delights in saying, I am completely responsible for everything that happens. God delights in saying, he said, did you just hear me say, I create light and darkness, I create well-being and calamity, I delight in being a God like that. And guess what? You and I are invited to join in that delight. So let me add that last thing. When we cannot understand God's ways, don't strive with Him. Submit to a God who has turned the worst evil humans have ever committed into a glorious salvation. By all means, question Him, but in a spirit of humility and dependence. And then finally, God delights in being God and calls us to share in His delight. And this, my brothers and sisters, is authentic worship. Because worship is our response to God's self-revelation. That's what makes it authentic. That's what our mission statement is all about. Making disciples who will follow Jesus Christ in authentic worship. This is authentic worship. Because we respond the way God has revealed Himself. And not read. You change this picture of God, you're creating an idol. Any adjustments you make to God as He has revealed Himself to be, you are creating an idol. But take him as he is and you are worshipping him. And when you worship him, you are plunging yourself into the fountain of that glorious salvation. Paul, and I finish with this, illustrates what this looks like for us at the end of Romans chapter 11. Chapters 9, 10 and 11 are three of the most complex chapters in Romans. They all begin by answering, asking a question, has God's word failed because Israel rejected the Messiah? And there are three chapters of fairly difficult responses to that that deal even more engagingly with God's sovereignty in ways that are even more troubling than the verses we've talked about today. But, as far as we're concerned, this is how he ends. How does he end? (laughs) And I've given you the NLT version. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. 
How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. That is authentic worship. That is Paul worshipping the way Isaiah 45 tells us to worship. And now we're just running ahead of Isaiah now. We're running way past 49 to 53 to the fulfillment of that 800 years after these verses. It is because he absorbed all the darkness. Remember the darkness of Gethsemane, which anticipated the awful darkness. Oh, did he not create the darkness for three hours on Good Friday? And did he not submit to that sovereignty? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then on the other side, what has sustained Sean for three months? He is risen. So those who are helping serve the elements, will you come to the front while the worship team comes up and you folk could just continue meditating. Meditating on this God who has been revealed to us ultimately in the person of Jesus. Because of whom we can still say, ultimately it is light that will trump darkness and shalom that will trump disaster. Two of the last three songs we sang talked about waiting. And so that's my blessing for us in the light of the darkness and disaster both within the church and in the world. And maybe in your own life. Because he is the everlasting God. May the one who often withdrew into quiet and solitary places to listen to his God. May he enable you to slow down and wait often this week. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.